Hey, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Late Night Happy Hour. Brian Kamenetsky and Andy Kamenetsky joined tonight. Uh, very excited. Joined tonight by uh, Jeff Perlman. He is the author of nine books, including uh, Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty, which comes out uh, the 22nd, which I think is next week. I don't know. Time is a flat circle now, so I think it is. Um, he's also the host of uh, Two Writers Sling and Yang, which is called by Michael Lewis, Andy. The best writing podcast in America. That guy makes like $13,000 a word. Okay, I'm not going to lie to you. If you look closely, it's not that Michael Lewis. It's a different Michael Lewis writer. Whatever. Oh, well, I mean, is this Michael Lewis impressive on any level? Yeah, he's a uh, he's a really nice guy. It's <laughs> so hard to find right now. Like, <laughs> how hard it is to find. That is true. I mean people it, it really does feel these days like the assholes are just coming out in full bloom like they've really been given permission to be themselves so michael lewis being who he is even if he can't write worth a damn that is a nice guy to be giving you props jeff did you see the people running through target without their masks uh earlier today i think yeah. it was uh, that where? Was, the mike that was in florida that was michael lewis was one of those people <laughs> <laughs> I would I would take his name off your podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, this tells you the difference between you and, and us. Like, we would have absolutely allowed everyone to believe that that Michael Lewis oh, yeah. uh, is the one who actually called your podcast the best uh, pod writing podcast in America. It is good. I mean, if you're a person who is interested in writing and what you know people do as they go through that process and how stories come together and how they get told, you should listen to it. I actually think that Michael Lewis, as fancy as he is, might benefit a little bit from it. So that's just I tried getting him on, and he won't do it. I just want to say, I was not trying to mislead anyone. We did that as a joke. But well, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it, it worked. You, you, you got me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, you have to remember, and, and this is proof positive of everything, there are people who will fall for whatever. And, you know, once you've got nine books, Jeff, it is believable yeah. that Michael Lewis, like that Michael Lewis, would be interested in your podcast. I mean, it becomes a believable lie, if nothing else. You know, I I, uh, I always say in the book world, like I've had, I've lived my dream, right? And I've written nine books and I've written a bunch of bestsellers and I have had a more, you know, financially lucrative writing career than 99% of probably book writers. You know, I've had a great career, like for myself, it exceeded all my dreams. But Michael Lewis, if you took all my book sales, all of them, Put them together and eliminate them from Michael Lewis's book sales. He would not notice. <laughs> oh no! But like I wasn't kidding when I said Michael Lewis makes like thirteen thousand yeah, dollars a word to write for Vanity Fair. Like I, yeah. I, I'm not exaggerating by a lot. Well, maybe, maybe maybe the move is you go on his podcast first, and then he'll feel like maybe he needs to reciprocate by coming on yours. Like maybe maybe that's your in. Or you know what? Follow him on Twitter, and then he'll follow you back. <laughs> that still him. works. He's too, he's so cool, and above it all, he's not. He doesn't need to be me groveling for books, and you know, blah blah blah. He's way above. He's just way above. It's, it's good. You're both good at your jobs. Um, so you know, obviously, we'll get into the book here in a second. Here, it, it is a, a really fun look at the at the three Pete Lakers um, and that dynasty. How much of like the current stuff have you been watching were you able to see like the clippers meltdown last night like do you get a chance to do those things i don't watch as much as most people and it's weird because when you promote a book like this people say so what do you think about what paul george said and i'm like what did paul george say <laughs> because i just like you're i'm already working on the next book and you're deep into the next book and you're researching you're researching and 
I'm not as up to date as I probably. I mean, I've watched some of it, but I'm not super up to date. Are you aware of what happened to the Clippers? Yes, I am okay. aware of what happened to the Clippers. Were you aware Paul George was on the Clippers? I was aware that Paul George was on the Clippers. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I was aware of that. So. Yeah, it, it's funny, actually. Like, it, when, whenever you're – I mean, we're all in different parts of the sports media industry, but, we, but we're in it. And I think the assumption from a lot of people is always that people like us follow everything. We yeah. watch every single sport – and I know there are some people in sports media who do that, but I like, I know for me, for example, like I only have so much bandwidth and, you know, I'm balancing family, balancing, you know, fatherhood, all that, you know, all this stuff and also trying to stay sane. There's the stuff that I know that I need to know and I keep up with that. And a lot of the stuff that I don't need to know, I honestly don't know a thing about, like, I couldn't tell you who's involved with the NHL playoffs. Like I have literally looked it up today. I have no idea. The I have not a clue. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I like hockey. I don't follow it religiously, but I like it as a game. But it's just like I don't have time, and I don't need to know it for what I do. I had a moment in my career. Um, I used to be a baseball writer at Sports Illustrated, and I was covering the 2001 World Series between the Yankees and the Diamondbacks. It's one of the great World Series of oh, modern. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't remember which game it was, but one of the games at Yankee Stadium, I was sitting next to Tom Verducci and another writer named Steve Canella from SI. And I started having like stomach cramps or something. And I wasn't writing on deadline that day. So I went home. I wasn't feeling well. I took the subway, went to my girlfriend's apartment, which is now my wife. And I was sitting there and I watched the game on TV and my stomach hurt. And I'm lying down on the couch. And I think Scott Rosas hit an extra inning home run to win it. And it was this huge win and blah, blah, blah. And I was so happy not to be there. Like I was actually happy not to be yeah. there. I didn't want to deal with the cliche questions. I didn't want to deal with TV cameras hitting me in the head. I didn't want to deal with trying to get a stupid quote from someone who didn't even want to talk to. Like I was happy not to get not to be there. And that was a real moment for me when I realized if you're happy not being at a classic, classic World Series game at Yankee Stadium, maybe sports doesn't mean as much to you as it once did, you know? And that kind of changed me a little bit, to be honest. Well, I, I'm wondering too, because I, I, I get this a lot too. Like, I, you, you, your fan allegiances change, and you know, as Andy said, you become busy. You have stuff to do. You just don't have enough of the time. And just as an adult, it's sometimes you just don't, you don't invest in your teams the same way you did when you were 13, 14, 15. It just doesn't mean as much. Right. But I'm wondering what, what still attracts you then to sports? What about because you know you, you obviously still live in this world in just a different way. What are the things that still attract you to it? Well, my number one thing is nostalgia. Like I love diving into, you know, like my, of all the books I've written, probably my favorite was this book I did, you know, two back or one back about the USFL, which was a league when I was Mm -hmm. a kid growing up. I love like my first book was about the 86 Mets. I was 13 years old during that season. I love diving back and taking this thing that meant everything to me as a kid and just dissecting it, take it apart one by one and finding bigger meaning in it and understanding it. So for me personally, it's the feelings that you had as a 12 year old kid when these guys were larger than life and then going back in time and sort of taking it apart and really looking into it. And even if you're disappointed by what you find, some of the characters aren't quite what you were hoping for. um, It's still a real joyful thing for me. So that's my, you know, when you're a kid, everyone is bigger and faster and stronger and the best and they can't do any wrong. And, you never hear the negatives, and especially when we were growing up, you didn't hear the negatives. 
and I love going back in time. That's my favorite thing by far about sports. Yeah, it it is interesting. Like I I know for example when we first got started in this, one of the one of the athletes that I genuinely got starstruck the first time I was ever around was Tony Hawk. And I don't remember exactly where I was the first time I met him, but like when I was 13, like Tony Hawk was like a god. Like I thought he was one of the coolest people walking the earth. Right. And just there were other athletes of bigger stature, you know, that I that I came into contact with professionally. And, you know, in the beginning, there there is an awe factor just being around all of them, just because it's something that you're not used to. But once you do get used to it, I, I have genuinely generally found that, that that the ones that usually get me most excited, like you said, Jeff, are the ones that can really bring back that feeling of you know when it really was all bigger than life even though some of these guys you meet now you know they're either incredible athletes or they're genuinely interesting but yeah. it's just different the ones that can really bring back that- oh, sorry um i would say this when i was covering baseball i covered it for a good old amount of time and one day i was in the cincinnati reds clubhouse for spring training and the reds used to have a writer named hal mccoy from the dayton daily news and I told him when I was a kid growing up, my favorite ball player by far, hands down, was a Ken Griffey Sr. I was a huge Ken Griffey Sr. fan. And I'm standing in the clubhouse. And I'm telling Hal McCoy this during a dead time. And he goes, oh, hold on one second. And he's like, Ken, come over here. Come over here. And it's like, hey, uh, Ken, this is Jeff Perlman. He writes for Sports Illustrated. I think my exact words were, uh, hi. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, like when I wet myself, like I was like, I'd interviewed, I've interviewed you know, the most famous athletes and politicians and blah, blah, blah. But meeting your boyhood idol is, it's something different. There's something about it that's really kind of profound. I don't know. Or weird. Oh, yeah. I I, I remember one time we got, I got sent to the Texans. I don't know if it's still their stadium or wait, I, I haven't been ever since. But at some event, and I met, do you remember Jerry Ball, the defensive lineman? Oh, I think yeah. it was, like, was he on the Lions? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Like, I mean, he's, you like, know, he had a nice, solid five, career. Exactly. Like a nice career. And, you know, I mean, was in the NFL for several years, but like, you know, he's not a big name by any stretch. I was ridiculously excited to meet Jerry Ball to the point where I think he could feel my enthusiasm and was kind of like, calm down, man. That's like, fine. get a hold of yourself. You're an adult. I feel Jerry like Ball. both of you. I feel like both your eyes did a momentary this when you saw that I knew he played for Detroit, which I think was <laughs> I'm as big a loser as you're going to find on this show that I knew. Well, I mean, well, but it's, it's all part of the same era. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, absolutely. And like it, it does. It's amazing, like how the range goes. I mean, Andy talked about this you know, being starstruck for like with Tony Hawk. I was doing some backstage ESPYS thing, and Wayne Gretzky comes up and, and you know it shakes his hand. Hi, I'm Wayne. That's no awesome. shit. Right. <laughs> I, I am. I am very aware of, of, right. of who you are. And what's he and, supposed to say though? He's supposed I to say, know. "You know I, me. I'm Wayne Gretzky." Well, here's the thing. And this is a, there. There are two athletes who I have been in contact with who have introduced themselves to me in that way: Wayne Gretzky and Avery Johnson. And that's it. And I don't say that to say that these guys are not nice people. They're kind, of, but the, you, particularly in a working environment, they are doing this in the context of you knowing who they are, as opposed as opposed to like, 
you know, just sort of doing the thing that you might meet like, oh, this is my wife's friend from work. Right. That's Steve over there. Oh, hi, Steve. I don't, I, it's, it's actually kind of rare. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 have you found, you know, often you mentioned that, that, you know, sometimes guys are disappointing. How often do you find that happens um, when, when you meet some of these people and they disappoint you in that way? I mean, when I was a baseball writer, it was a lot. Um, because I feel like I covered baseball during a disappointing era for people. Like there's a lot of steroids. I really do. I feel like when I covered baseball, late nineties, early to mid two thousands, it was just kind of a gross little world, you know? And it was like, there was a lot of, a lot of cheaters and a lot of liars and a lot of people who are just like, they weren't people you'd really want to hang out with. Um, so a lot writing books is a little different because, um, people generally are happy to talk about nostalgia. It, it warms them as much as it warms me. So when mm -hmm. you call, like, whatever, you say, Rick Fox, would you meet with me at start? Yeah, man, how long you want to talk for? You know, or especially if you call, like, you call Mark Madsen or you call, you know, some guy who was in training camp with the Lakers or any team. They're just so happy to talk about this time. It was like, it's like asking someone to talk about their fraternity days, you know? Andy actually doesn't like talking about his fraternity. Talk <laughs> 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 about your fraternity days. I mean, there's, there's I don't know, maybe a block of about, I don't know, 1987 to about maybe 2003. I just prefer not to talk about, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll just take those like 16, 20 years, whatever it is. And we'll just rather not go there. I remember when, I, when Andy, Andy, Andy called me once when he was a freshman and he was at USC and I was, I was still living at home in St. Louis and he called me one night and it was like, it was <sighs> like four in the morning, probably my time, give or take. <laughs> so it's like late. And I pick up the phone and he just says, Hey, I'm like, hey, <laughs> it's like, um, is it bad to be throwing up blood? I said, <laughs> yeah, I, I think probably. He's like, yeah, I thought that too. All right, thanks. <laughs> Hung up. That was it. Yeah, I don't know what happened after that, but I mean, I'm glad I could help. So that was during that period. You should, first of all, you shouldn't throw up blood ever. Uh, no, no, no. I mean, I, I, I asked around, and it turns out Brian's assessment was correct. It's not a good thing if you're throwing up blood. You're not throwing up blood. Um, but I want to have a contest real quick, if you don't mind. So you sure. we mentioned before we started recording that you did not enjoy your bar mitzvah. No. No, I did I, not. I want to do a, I want to do a uh, bar mitzvah off with you, and I oh, bet God. I had a worse experience in my bar mitzvah than you had of yours. Mm, okay. Are you game for that? Yes. I, love bar mitzvah. I mean, I, I don't know where it's going to go, but sure, let's do this. What happened to your bar mitzvah? Um, I was basically functionally illiterate in Hebrew. Um, I didn't like the whole thing. I mean, I, I had a difficult time beyond just culturally with Judaism. I had a difficult time with the whole religious end of it. And I was not particularly into Sunday school. Like the deal that I eventually struck with my parents to get me to finish Hebrew school was you get to quit Sunday school when you're, when you do your bar mitzvah. Like that was basically like the deal that we worked out. But, there will be no confirmation. But I, I yeah, found no the whole. I oh no, <laughs> no the confirmation was for suckers. I didn't yeah, do that. Totally. But was. like I found the whole process just incredibly stressful because I really couldn't handle the Hebrew. I didn't fully, I didn't fully invest in what I was doing up on the bima, as our people would call it. Uh, others would nice. call the stage. Nice um, platform. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and. I found just the whole thing completely, completely stressful. I had to write out all my Hebrew phonetically in English 
just so I could get through the whole thing. Like I begged my parents to let me drop out of it. And like, you know, I had friends who were like, oh, the gifts, you know, I mean, you're going to be just racking it and raking it in. I'm like, I don't care. I'm like, I would rather actually not get the gifts. And like, you know, the money was great. I basically used it all on drum equipment because I played drums back then. Yeah. So like, you know, there, there was a, a price or I, I guess a, a payoff from it, but I, I just found the whole thing stressful and in some ways fraudulent because I'm up there the whole time really just thinking to myself, I have no idea what the hell I'm even talking about. Like, I really don't even know what I'm doing up here. Go. All right. I feel like I can beat that. Um, Mount Kisco Holiday Inn, 1985. We had... All three parts. I feel like you're setting up a Golden Girls story. It's again, sure. tell you. Picture 1985. Now, kids go holiday in 1985. Where is that, by the way? That's in New York. Okay. That's in uh, Westchester County, New York. And um, we had all in the holiday, and we had the um, the service was in one room. Then there was a bar where we had a cocktail reception with a string quartet. My dad got a string quartet. It was a very nice touch. Fancy. And then there was the main. There was the main reception. Okay. My mom, I hope, does not watch this show because she hates when I tell the story, but it's one of my favorite shows. They invite, my, my mom invites, let's say we had 120 people invited. She invites 60% to the service, the cocktail hour, and the main party. She invites the remaining 40% just to the service and the cocktail hour. Oh, wow. <laughs> so the people invited just to the cocktail hour are unaware. They actually don't oh know God. when they're ready. So I remember vividly Jimmy McDonald, the kid who lived up the street from me on Queens uh, Ridge. Saying, who was not a Jew. Not, does not, not sound Jew, Jewish. And not invited to the main reception, saying to his mom, wait, I don't understand. Why aren't we going into the party? And I'm just like, I don't know. And I'm 13. You're a 13-year-old boy. You don't know anything about anything. You're just like, okay, I'll see you. And I look back at that with great. Well, I will say this, like your mom's plan. I understand these things are very expensive, but if yes. you're only going to invite, if you're going to tell 40% of the people to leave, you cannot do that to the Gentiles because it sets, it really does sort of reinforce all the worst stereotypes about our people. Don't you think someone who was invited, this is 85, so 35 years ago. Don't you think there's at least one person out there who still, when my name comes up, still tells the story of my bar mitzvah? Oh, that cheap bastard. I mean, you are lucky that this was not like in the social media age because your bar mitzvah and, you know, the shit show and the 40 people not, 40% not invited, that thing would have gone viral. Yeah, it would have gone viral. And then gone. the Yelp review would have just been absolutely horrible. Oh, my God. <laughs> Worst bar mitzvah ever. Yeah, that's a pretty. My mine, I guess, went off without a hitch. Other than other you than my want to be there. Well, I would say other than my participation, it went <laughs> off without a hitch. Yeah, I mean, really, I was the only thing. There was it nothing. Down. No, there was nothing otherwise wrong with Andy's bar mitzvah except him. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was. We were, it was like watching. It was like it was in We were a reform synagogue. It was like watching a ninety-minute hostage video. It was terrible. You were. Actually, I have a bar mitzvah story about Brian's bar mitzvah. All right. Do you, do you remember, Brian, the controversy? I remember literally nothing about my bar mitzvah, so please tell. Your bar mitzvah happened during um, a weekend where cut – where not cuts, but like it was, it was important for football in terms of uh, position battles and stuff like that. And there was like a big scrimmage that I couldn't go to because of the bar mitzvah. 
And it ultimately cost me playing time in a position battle that I was in. And I was so mad that they wouldn't let me skip the bar mitzvah so I could like secure a starting spot. <laughs> I was so, so angry at our parents over this. You could, like, have, been the, like, you could have been the next Jerry Ball. I could have been. been. Was your coach anti-Semitic? Was he holding No, no the coach was not anti-Semitic, but like he wasn't understanding about this. I mean, he basically was like, look, this, this is – this could cost you some playing time. And it did. And I was pissed. I was yeah. really, really mad. It's a bummer. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at least I haven't forgotten. No, you, you're, you're handling it well. Um, I wanna, <laughs> let's, let's talk a little bit about this. Um, because it, it's, it's a super I, – I, I will admit I, I did not finish it. I'm about 140-something pages in, which is pretty good considering what's going on in my house right now. Um, but it, it's a lot of fun. Three ring circus. My my first question though is, when you how do you approach a story like this that isn't unknown? I mean, there have been books written about the you know the three peat thing, and and Phil's written a book, and like so. Where do you where, what's your approach to come at material like this when people kind of feel like maybe they know the story? So my my philosophy um, in writing books it. it it's kind of like this. Um, I always think, like I wrote Brett Favre's biography, just as an example. And people would say, oh, you know everything about Brett Favre, blah, 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 blah. And I always think like somewhere out there, there is a free agent running back from Bucknell who is in camp with the Packers for a month, who remembers vividly the way Favre treated him or a moment with Favre in the cafeteria or the way Favre's football threw out of his hand, came out of his hand and the sound of it. And Brett Favre would have no memory that guy existed. And that guy would remember everything about his moments with Brett Favre. So for me, a lot of it is tracking down the Mike Penberthys and Jimmy King, who was in camp with the, you know, in Kobe's first uh, summer league camp, you know, and every sort of person who is there who maybe, you know, like Shaq, Kobe, Phil, they've told their stories a million times, obviously. But there are all these people who actually haven't. They're ball boys, they're front office executives, they're interns. So I try to find all these people cobble together. And I also like, I try to take moments. Like if they're big, like Kobe's four air balls against Utah in, in his first playoff. My thing is, all right, I know it was bad. I know how he felt about it. Let me find the guys on Utah who have never been asked about it. And what I got were a lot of guys on Utah who were desperate for Kobe to shoot the ball, who were like, wait, he's going to shoot again. This is great. You know, like literally Stephen Howard, who was on the jazz said to me, I was like, well, what were you thinking? He's like, great shoot I, we want him to shoot don't pass the ball to eddie jones or don't pass it to van exel let kobe shoot the ball so i just try to find different voices fresh voices fresh perspectives and another thing you do that i think is important is you take little things and you try to expand them like uh shaq did a movie kazam yes one of the worst movies of all time yeah the chapter on kazam yeah. is hysterical i'm the worst until <laughs> some Steel. of the ones. yeah right. Steel. I would argue Steel is a finer movie than Kazam, but that's a controversial take. Although they might were trying have, to might, might have to put up a poll. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good one actually. There's also blue chips, but um, so like I look at these things and I think, all right, people have talked about the, the the dynasty and all that stuff, but how many people have dug into like Kazam and what it meant to Shaq and this idea of coming to Hollywood and why? And I just I just like digging and digging and digging and digging and digging and interviewing hundreds of people and just seeing what I can find that's fresh. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's like it's got to be a challenge that way, though, in terms of finding different ways to sort of I don't want to say retell what's already been told, but, you know, find what's new in there. And I guess like as a writer are those characters that haven't told their end of the story, how confident do you often feel that like people will actually care about their perspective? Like the details are the details, but you're still trying to set up these people as characters in it. Like, you know, the, the, for example, a guy like Jelani McCoy, yeah. you know, gets a decent, gets a decent amount of coverage in the book and like a decent amount of quote time. And the details from Jelani McCoy are terrific, but you also, I would wonder if there's a part of you thinking, Will people actually care that it's Jelani McCoy saying it? Or, or they'd, they'd be like, it's a scrub, who cares? Well, that's interesting because if you think about it, if you think about like probably all three of us have, have had this where people, I've had this a million times where someone will say, well, what's so-and-so like, right? Or what's it like inside the clubhouse? Or what's it like? Like right. people just want to know what it was like. So like Jelani McCoy is a perfect example. I met him down in San Diego, sat outside a restaurant, and he talked at length. One of the things he talked at length about was how awful Gary Payton was to play with. Yes. How Gary Payton was just a bully and kind of an asshole. It doesn't matter who's saying that. Like, he was there for it. So he's there. So here's Jelani McCoy, who is the direct conduit to what it was like to play with Gary Payton. You know, or I, I opened the book with this fight that happens between uh, Samaki Walker and Kobe Bryant. Well, Jelani McCoy is sitting right there in the seat next to Samaki Walker. So that's great. So I don't think people reduce, or I'll tell you, even a better example is um, one of my favorite guys to interview for this book was Mike Penberthy. And Mike mm -hmm. Penberthy was a guard with the Lakers for a cup of coffee. But heading into the final series against Philly, he and Tyron Lue were the two guys who imitated Allen Iverson in practices. So here's Mike Penberthy, this little NAIA guard from Masters College. And he's just, and in Masters College, he actually was, he was basically an NAIA Allen Iverson. Yeah, he threw the ball 90% of the time. He was super quick. He shot from everywhere. So Phil Jackson is like, I just want you to be Iverson in practices. So the stories he gets to tell me about pretending to be Allen Iverson, I mean, that's gold. Yeah. And nobody cares if it's him or Shaq Tone. Like, that's great stuff. So I feel like it gives you a, a perspective um, that maybe hasn't been offered before. Yeah, it is. I, I mean, look, I'm a huge Laker fan. So like though those type of details are the ones that I actually personally find most interesting because I feel like and this is where, what I wanted to ask next with you. I feel like in a lot of ways, those are the moments where you're really learning the most mm -hmm. with a story that are, you know, a period of Laker history that's been told a lot without giving away too much because you want to make sure people pick wow. up the book. What? Yeah, don't tell people who wins at the end. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then what? the asteroid hits the earth. What? Spoiler alert, the even Lakers broad, win. Even if broadly speaking, what what was something that you learned about this era that you genuinely didn't know? Or like that I, really was pretty surprising? I'll tell you one thing I freaking love, 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 is um, the only reason Kobe became a Laker. Like, I mean, there are multiple little reasons, but the single person, if you want to blame or credit one person, it's John Calipari um, because heading into that draft, the Nets, they weren't just thinking about taking Kobe Bryant. They were taking Kobe Bryant. This is going to happen. They told Kobe's parents, we're taking you. John Nash was the general manager of the Nets. We are taking your son. How does that sound? That sounds great. But um, Kobe's agent and Jerry West were, uh, were pretty close friends. And Kobe had signed a sneaker deal with Adidas. 
And basically the idea was this will work out a lot better in LA than it will him playing in East Brunswick, New Jersey. So um, Kobe's agent calls John Calipari and says, this is right before the draft. They've decided they are taking Kobe. If he's there at number eight, the Nets are taking Kobe Bryant. He calls him right before the draft and he says, um, if you draft Kobe, he's going to Italy. He's not going to play with you. And John Calipari at the time is a first-year Nets coach who has um, in his contract, he's final personnel say. And he basically runs into John Nash's office and says, oh, my God, oh, my God, we can't take Kobe Bryant. He's not going to sign with us. And John Nash is basically like, listen, buddy, you got to calm down. This is just this is bluff. Okay, Kerry Kittles is coming out of Villanova at the time. Kerry Kittles want, desperately wants to play for the Nets, local guy Villanova. His agent calls John Calipari and says, if you guys don't draft Kerry Kittles if he's available, you're going to have a hard time ever signing my clients again. John Calipari, oh, my God, oh, my God, what the hell is going on here? Blah, 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 blah. He genuinely, legitimately panics. So John Nash is like, Cal, they, they are bluffing. They're all bluffing. But Calipari is terrified of this idea of, um, of basically his career beginning with a high school kid not signing with them and going to Italy instead. He holds a meeting right before the draft and he says, here's what we're going to do. If Kerry Kittles is available at number eight, we're going to take Kerry Kittles. If he's not there, we're going to draft Kobe Bryant. Number eight pick comes. They draft Kerry Kittles. Jerry West is in his office, euphoric, because he knows. Jerry West said to Jerry Buss, he said, we just got the best player in this draft. We just got the best player. Well, he also knew, too, like as far as the other teams and what they needed, Kobe yes. was going to be available. Right. Like, and nobody else picked, needed it. He's picked by the Hornets. The Hornets make the, the Hornets want a center. They make the trade for Vlade. And – you know, he was right, Kobe. And it's funny. One thing the Nets did, this is really funny. The Nets worked out Kobe, and then they, whatever, he was flying somewhere next. This is a true story. The Nets worked him out multiple times. He had to fly to L.A., I think, and they gave him a middle seat. They booked him a middle seat on a commercial flight, and that pissed off Kobe's people and Kobe. And well, I just and, think- It was Sean Marks who booked that flight, correct? It was Sean Marks. Yeah. yeah. So uh, – you know the 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 former Nets GM now with uh, with ESPN and like and just little, or something at the time. Right? Yeah, Low little sto- little stories like that are just they are spectacular. Bobby, Marks. Say. The, Bobby Marks. Bobby Sean, Marks. Sean, Sean, Sean yeah. Marks was the Sean actual Marks. basketball player. Yeah, Sean Marks played at Arizona. Who is with? He actually is with the Nets now. He's a lot he, of Marks go around. Yes, there there are a lot of them. Yep. The too um, many yeah, too many Marxists. Yes. So, <laughs> speaking of, I mean. It's yes, Bill. Um, I know I got it wrong. Yes, <laughs> the wrong oh, guy. Bill. Oh, Bill. Yeah, we get it, Bill. But, but thanks, thank Bill. you. Thanks for um, coming on our show in the comment section and to judge me. I appreciate it. With uh, we're I mean, we're talking about Kobe now, and obviously, what ended up happening this year with his, with his passing. How did that change for you the context of the book? I mean, obviously, the history is the history, and the history doesn't change, but in terms of the way you view telling all of this and the details of it, in particular, like this period of Kobe's life, which is a really difficult period for him. Yeah. Um, it is uh, super weird, first of all, and uncomfortable, right? Um, my cousin read the book and the other day, my cousin Daniel, and he actually texted me and he's like, I'm kind of worried for you. You know, um, he's a book. I finished the book before Kobe passed. Then Kobe died. Um, I kind of took some time. I mean, you know, and then I wrote sort of an author's note at the beginning of the book, explaining that this is just a period of time in Kobe's life. It's not the entirety of his life. The thing is, 
if I'm being realistic, if I had tried writing this book after Kobe's death, 70% of those interviews are different. I can serve. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if Samaki Walker's as flamboyantly telling the story of that fight. I don't know if different guys are talking, you know, there are guys who are pretty brutal on Kobe in this book. Um, so it's a little weird and, and it's uncomfortable. And I just really emphasize the point at the beginning of the book that this is a period of his life and a period of development of his life. And the guy at 25, 26 wasn't the guy at 41, you know, and we all go through these growing pains and these developments, but it's, it's, I've never gone through anything like this, so I don't really know what to expect, but it's uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, and there's, there's no, obviously no template for it, but like, the, but it's, it's not the, the Kobe you write about in this book was that guy. He was a colossal pain in the ass. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, a, a, a prodigious talent. He was on his way to being one of the greatest players that the league has ever seen, but like, his entry into the league was not comfortable. It was not good for anyone. And it it was reflective of a very complicated guy. I mean, like when you read the book, I think what sticks out to me is when you read the book and you, you're reminded of, because we all got used to seeing sort of that Uncle Kobe, the fatherly Kobe, the veteran guy who was so uh, well-spoken, so in command of his message and and, and that, that you forget what he was when he came into the league. And it's in, in, when you read it again, I was at least reminded, Jeff, of just how much he needed to grow and why his, his career evolved in the way it did because where he was starting was so profoundly uncomfortable. Yeah, I think, um, I think he tried on a lot of suits throughout his career, I really do. I think um, he came along and he was Overly confident Kobe. And then what's really interesting, um, I talked about this. Back in 96, I was living in New York City, and my roommate was this guy, Russ Bankson, who was the editor of Slam Magazine at the time. And Slam Magazine kind of merged hip-hop and basketball into this cultural phenomenon magazine. And you would have, like, Allen Iverson with his hair blown out, Stefan Marbury, you know, like, guys who kind of personified the NBA and hip-hop merging and tattoos and cornrows, and it was really cool. And whenever Kobe would be on the cover, and he was on the cover a few times, it was just an awkward fit because that wasn't really Kobe. Kobe wasn't that guy, but he kind of tried to be that guy. And when people would hear him curse or talk a lot of trash, or it just never fit. And there was, he also like, he was always, especially when he came into the league, a lot of Jordan imitating. But we are oh, Jordan, yeah. the licking of the lips, the posture, the, the shots, the mannerisms. And it was just weird. You know, it's like, in hindsight, it's a strange effort to be something and you don't quite know who you are. And I think he struggled with that a lot. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this book is, and you're reminded of it, I mean, even people like us who I think knew a fair amount about Kobe regardless, just because the industry we're in and, you know, Brian, in my case, we literally covered the guy. Like there was a lot of, I think, Kobe, especially in the first half of his career, maybe even a couple of years after like, I think really figuring out who he was and like, you know, what what his place was in this world beyond just having this otherworldly talent. You know what I mean? Like what he meant as a person be, and what his identity was beyond just basketball. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about, you know, the upbringing that he had where he's shuttling back and forth from different continents. And, you know, he's speaking, you know, a few different languages, but he doesn't entirely fit in anywhere, you know, it doesn't really fit in anywhere that he's living. 
And then, you know, then he, he arrives on this Lakers team that, you know, it's not the type of team that most high profile rookies end up on. Like most of them don't end up on teams that are this good where you don't necessarily have the opportunity to grow into yourself. And, yeah. you know, and on top of it, he's, you know, he's 17 when he signs that contract. I mean, all people do at that age, you know, teenagers through like your mid 20s, it's all about figuring out really who you are and what you want anyway. Yeah. And, and I, I think the book does a really good job documenting it without necessarily spelling it out thematically. But I think that's there. I thought um, one thing I keep thinking about that was an interesting Kobe moment that I, I think speaks to that is it was uh, the 3 4 season. Carl Malone is on the team and they're heading into Thanksgiving and they're playing their final game before Thanksgiving. And Kobe's Carmelo's doing an interview with a reporter and Kobe's leaving. He gets up to leave the locker room. And Carmelo says to the reporter, hold on one second. And he goes, yo, young buck, come here, come here. He calls Kobe over and he talks softly to Kobe's, to Kobe's ear. And then Kobe goes teammate to teammate and wishes them a good Thanksgiving and leaves. And like, it was Carmelo saying, listen, you gotta, you wish your teammates a nice Thanksgiving before you leave. That's just something you do. And it's really funny because if you, if you, if you look at the veterans they brought in during that time period, in a way, it's unspoken, but a lot of these guys were brought in, in a way, to translate for Kobe Bryant and to teach Kobe Bryant. From Derek Harper mm -hmm. to J.R. Reed to John Sally to Ron Harper, Rick Fox, obviously. Like, it was guys who were there not just to play, but to sort of help nurture him. And, and the tough part was he sort of rejected it. Like, he would listen a little, but he really felt like he knew the best way for him. And that made it a little tough. Well, yeah, that was some of my the stuff that I thought was, you know, the, the guys were like, we tried. Like, it's not like we wouldn't try. Right. Um, but, I mean, it just gets, I mean, Kobe Kobe grew more comfortable explaining these things. And obviously you win five titles. You have a, you know, you, you, you grow into having the credibility to shoot the way he did, to play the way he did, to talk the way he did after you've done all the winning. Like when you're, when you're 18, 17, 18, 19, you haven't won anything, it's hard to do that. Um, but he talked about it, like he was not, you know, he's not a person who could be a really good friend because he's too consumed with being Kobe Bryant and winning and being pathological in that way. Like he had time for his kids and basically basketball and that was it. And, you know, it was not a healthy, not a normal and healthy way for anyone to live, to be that driven and to be that driven as, as a kid, like, it's not a surprise that he was so awkward you know, coming into the league, you know, especially when you consider he didn't grow up here. I think it's interesting how, um, actually, I was just thinking there was one, there's one moment in the book where uh, Rick Fox and Robert Ori are out to dinner and Kobe sees him and he comes over, talk to him. And it's, there's not a game that night. There's a game the next night. And Robert Ori is, I think, drinking a beer or a glass of wine. And Kobe is horrified that he's drinking before a game, but it's like not even that night. It would be the next night. <laughs> and Robert Ori is like 30 years old. He's like, all right, junior, you know, it's, it's okay. But I, I think it's interesting how um, Kobe was legitimately sort of bothered by what he perceived to be Shaq's lack of a work ethic. And I think if you really look at Shaq, like you really look at Shaq, like he was spending his off seasons kind of doing what you're supposed to do. Like he was on a, he was on a boat or he was floating in his pool and he was eating a cheeseburger and he was smoking a cigar. I'm like, you work hard so you can do those things. You know, like that is what you're, and I would say like Kobe had the better career than Shaq. I think most people would agree Kobe had a better overall career than Shaquille. There's no question he did. Sure. Yes. 
I would have rather been Shaquille O'Neal for that ride than Kobe because it just seemed like Shaquille O'Neal was in on the joke. And I don't think Kobe was in on the joke. Like Shaquille O'Neal got the, the ludicrous nature of I'm wearing glorified pajamas and I'm making millions of dollars to put a round ball through a cylinder. And I don't think Kobe ever understood that. Well, I mean, in fairness to Kobe, I think they viewed the game differently. I mean, yes. like, you know, Sha Shaq was, I mean, for all the goofing around and all the, you know, questionable work habits, all that stuff, he was sickly competitive like all these other guys. And mm -hmm. as you point out in the book, if you found the way to, you know, press Shaq's buttons, which was typically just piss him off, yeah. that's, you know, you could get some of the all-time great talent out of him. But Kobe really viewed basketball as like art. Like, like this was a true craft. And I think in a lot of ways he saw it as like, like a, a mystery to solve. Like this is something that you go into and you try to figure out. And the craft of basketball is just this never ending puzzle. And it was just, it was serious to Kobe in a way that it never was to Shaq. And I think it's because it was different to him. Like it literally was a different thing that he was doing on the court with a different purpose than it was for Shaq. I, I think um, it's interesting. Like Kobe's second year in the league, after his second year, he went to summer league again. He played in 96 and he played in 97. And the Lakers summer league team included former Fab Five or Jimmy King. Mm -hmm. Yes. And Jimmy King was a fourth of the Fab Five guys. He was a good player and he had a cup of coffee in the NBA. But, okay. you know, Kobe saw Jimmy King as a threat for no logical reason whatsoever. But Jimmy King was Fab Five and the shaved head and the baggy shorts and national TV. And, and Kobe just made it his goal to destroy Jimmy King, like destroy Jimmy King. And when different guys would come along, you know, Kobe, Kobe wanted to play J.R. Ryder desperately in one-on-one -on -one and, and just destroy J.R. Ryder. Like he had, he had these missions. Anyone was a threat and I'm going to destroy you. Shaquille O'Neal, like, he, you know, he, he viewed Mark Madsen as a practice dummy. He viewed Jelani McCoy as a practice dummy. They were not people he needed to destroy. If anything, they were people he needed to protect because he needed them to survive a season as practice dummies. It was just a very different way of looking at it all. It was, uh, it's Kobe was and again, it's sort of that imitation. It was, it was, uh, the thing in the in the last dance. Who did he, MJ, just annihilate for no reason other than he was just petty MJ? Remember that's that that section? I forget who it was. Oh, it was Lancaster Gordon, wasn't it? On the Washington Bullet, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a guy on Washington, I just forget who, but that was the same kind of thing, like just. There's no reason for a lot of these things, except the difference is Jordan was sort of already Bradford, established. Yeah. Kobe wasn't. Bradford Smith. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and like it's like why, but yeah. you know, one of the things I always think is fascinating in sports is when you get imperfect messengers for the appropriate message. Like when Dwight Howard was, you know, the first time around, and he was talking about the way the Lakers operated and you know, some of the issues with Kobe and this and that. And he wasn't necessarily wrong about some, he was a terrible messenger for it. When Kobe right. talked about Shaq and some of like, you know, he wasn't always wrong. Like Shaq's work ethic did cost the Lakers in a lot of ways. But, you know, but he wasn't necessarily the right for some of those messages. He had so many of his own issues. And that's, I think, one of the things that makes sports so interesting in these people so interesting is they you know they are full and you do a great job of this in the book they are holistic beings they are not just you know avatars for good or bad 
Um, I would imagine that's one of the fun things about getting to, to spend 350 pages on something is you can explore that. I always thought the, the dumbest question you can ask someone, I learned this over time because I used to ask it too, is, is so-and-so a nice guy? Like there's no, there's no real answer to that. Like, I mean, there are a couple of people mm -hmm. you meet who are like Barry Bonds is one of the, I'd say he's kind of a bad guy for my career. Right. But generally they're different shades. He's an you know, asshole. Like, was Kobe, was, yeah. He's kind of an asshole. But was Kobe a bad guy? No, Kobe wasn't a bad guy. Was he a great guy? He wasn't always a great guy. Was Shaq, you know, all these guys, like we're all, we all have our moments, you know, and we all have our highs and lows and things that get us pissed off and things that bring us joy. And I, I do believe like part of this job and part of the cool part of this job is trying to figure out what's beneath the person's, the best you can beneath the person's surface a little bit. Uh, There's a really uh, good question from A3. Um, and we, oh, go ahead, Andy. Yeah, you were doing the same thing. What, what were the toughest cuts that you needed to make in finalizing the book? I actually, it's not as much as you think that the, the terrible question, A3, get it yeah, together. No, oh, yeah, terrible. Person. Come on. Um, I would say um, a lot of it is like there are characters who I'm fascinated by, whose backgrounds I'm fascinated by. But as you guys were kind of alluding to, I'm not sure people care that much about. So, like, I could have done a lot more on Jimmy King or Kareem Rush, you know, or uh, Mark Madsen, certain guys where you would wind up with a 700 page book. Like, I like the backgrounds of all these kind of fringe players, but there's only so much you can do. So, a lot of that was kind of left on the floor. But not a ton. Yeah, actually, Andy uh, and I were hoping for five or six pages on Slava or five or six chapters yeah, on Slava. By the way, that Jeff, if I, you blew me I, off. Slava blew you off. Blew me off. Well, all I can oh, say is you yeah. should have tried harder. That, that guy's a goat, man. That guy's a, that guy's a legend. He is a legend among the Kamenetsky brothers. We love is Slava. Is oh, that true? Oh no, I'm not kidding. Our, avatar. our avatar. Look at our Twitter avatar. It's Slava dunking. Love Slava. Yeah, he blew me he's off. That's amazing. Yeah, no, he, no hard feelings. How, I mean, how hard did you try with Slava? Like, I tried hard. I got so he's a Facebook friend, and I kept I DM on Facebook, DM on Facebook. We'll do it so and so. Okay, we'll do it so and so. We'll do it. So Literally, these exchanges over and over again. I could show you. We'll do it so and so. We'll do it so and so. And I kept saying, man, I only got X amount of time. I only have it. And he'd be like, no, I'm overseas and blah blah blah. Try me then, blah blah blah. This has never happened. Wow. But I, I mean, did get Brian Cook, and they can't take that away from me. Yeah, no, we, we covered Cook for a few Yeah, years. but I didn't name my fantasy basketball team after Brian Cook, Jeff. You should have. Well, I maybe, maybe I will now, but I, it is named out. It's a named after a combination of Slava Medvedenko and Von Wafer, my two favorite Lakers. Wow, Von Wafer. Yeah. It's a deep dive. Nice. Um, sp speaking of characters in this, and I know I wanted to ask you about this anyway, but as long as we're sort of here, when we were DMing to figure out when you'd be on the show, you'd mentioned that uh, Isaiah Ryder, was your favorite character the from the whole book? What yeah. was it in because his his one year with the Lakers was to put it kindly chaotic, the best. All right, so can I tell you my story of how I got to Air Rider? Yes. All right, so I'm a fan of knocking on doors. Right, it's a little scary. You never know what you're going to get, but I am a fan of knocking on doors. In journalism, you do it. I had an address for Jr. Rider. I did not have a phone number, and it was in Arizona, and it was going to be in Arizona for something. So I was just like, I'm just going to knock on his door. I brought my USFL book with me. So I, you can have a book you can show and say, look, I wrote this book. I knock on the door one morning and uh, a kid answers. And I'm like, hey, I'm trying to find J.R. Ryder. And he's like, hold on. A woman comes to the door. I'm like, hey, my name's Jeff Perlman. I'm trying to find J.R. Ryder. Oh, hold on. She goes back. I hear yelling behind the door. And, uh, you know, your hands are definitely sweaty in these moments, but they're, that's okay. 
Jared Ryder comes to the door. He's got a kind of gray speckled beard, a little bigger than I remember. Not, not nothing bad though. He's like, who are you? And I'm like, Hey, my, my name's Jeff Perlman and I'm a writer and I'm, I'm writing a book and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, wait, wait a second, bro, bro. He's just, he's just, he's knocking my door. He's coming to my house and knocking my door, bro, bro. Are you, are you kidding me? That is so, bro. Then he opens the door. He comes out and he's like, bro, I'm just saying that is not cool, bro. You can't do that. And I just want to say, Jared Ryder, when he was a player, threatened to kill two different journalists. Right? Yes. Which, which you chronicle in the book. Yes. So one, but he, didn't. he didn't. He did not. He did not. He's, a, he's actually a nice to guy. Credit, he did not. So I'm like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I have this book. He goes, what's that? What's that book? And I go, oh, I wrote a book about the USFL. And he's like, is that, is that the Trump League? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, what are you working at? What are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm doing a book about the, you know, Shaq Kobe years. And I want to talk to you. He goes, all right, I'll talk to you. Okay. How long do you want to talk? And we ended up talking for two hours and he was awesome. <laughs> uh, he was great. totally, wait, someone said, Jr. was right. Yeah. Invasive. A comment from Kev Burnt. Jr. was right. Kind of invasive. One million percent correct. It isn't. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. Someone knocks on your door, you know, you don't, but that's kind of some of the things you have to do. And he was awesome. He was awesome. He was so great. So what, what about him did you find compelling? Because I mean, he, I know his career was really tumultuous and there were, you know, there were a lot of high profile, you know, arrests and, you know, issues he was having with team and stuff like that. But like as, as a person, what did you find so interesting about him? All right, so number one, he's actually really smart. He's flawed, but very, very smart. Like anyone who meets Jared Ryder, like Jared Ryder is almost creepy smart, how smart he is. He was so awesome with the Lakers because he did so many ridiculous things. Example number one, he overslept in mispractice, and he asked the guy at the front desk of the hotel where he was staying to write a note for him to give to Phil Jackson <laughs> that they didn't do a wake-up call. Number two, he missed multiple practices because his car was in the shop, but his hotel was only 300 yards from the, from the practice. <laughs> number three, number three, they're in Toronto and they're going through customs in Canada to fly back to the U.S. Oh, it's a good story. And he's he's walking and they're just walking past the security guards with the dogs. And a, one of the security dogs just starts going crazy and he's trying to pet the dog. And the, it's a drug dog and the dog is going crazy. And they detained J.R. Ryder, and he actually didn't have any drugs on him, but his clothes smelled so much like marijuana that he actually got pulled aside and questioned on the side. And Shaq's, security, Shaq's bodyguard, uh, Jerome, had to actually go get him and get him to be on the plane. So he was just – also, he was really talented, but so misguided, and he seemed like he was worth a shot, but it didn't really work out. And my, actually, my one of my favorite things J.R. told me, because it was really poignant, he was not active for the finals. Yeah. And it all, he's wearing a suit. He's on the sidelines, on the bench. It's really sad for him. He hates it. And at the end, he, he accidentally, when they win, they're doing a celebration. He opens a door. He thinks it's like a closet where he can go sit by himself. And it's the coach's locker room. And he walks in and Phil Jackson and all the coaches are smoking a cigar, drinking beers. And they're just like, oh, hey, JR, congratulations. Great job. And he just said it was the lowest, one of the lowest moments of his career, winning an NBA championship having nothing to do with a win, said he never wears the ring, just doesn't care about it at all. So 
Yeah, I, I remember when we covered the 2009-2010 uh, championship teams, I got a bit of a vibe like that from Adam Morrison, like just that he didn't quite know what to – like he actually enjoyed his time with the Lakers, and like it actually was beneficial for him just to have this place where it felt like he could sort of restart things and, you know, he he enjoyed the team a lot, but he literally was inactive for – I think he played no minutes for two final series, like combined. And he has two rings. And I mean, I, I, he never said anything about not having his rings or anything like that. But I, I remember talking with him a little bit, uh, you know, just about like, it's a weird thing to be that guy, like to, to sort of not know what your place was in the whole thing. Also, it's like one of those things where everyone says, we couldn't have done this without Adam. He was invaluable in practice, but everybody yeah, knows yeah. we would have done this without Adam. <laughs> say that. Yeah. Yeah. We could have absolutely 1000% done it without Adam. But, it, you know, the JR thing is, is a reminder and, you know, of how it, like Shaq and Kobe were so dominant and the personalities are so huge and overwhelming. And you have Phil and, the number of dudes who kind of float in and out of this era is, is crazy. I mean, like, there's the Rodman thing that kind of happened. And then, you know, fat Glenn Rice and, you know, J.R. Ryder and like all these, you know, these weirdos. And weirdo yeah, foster. I mean, Man. Mike Penberthy is a weird one. To be honest, like Mike Penberthy was like this thing that was an amazing phenomenon. I remember Mike Penberthy when I moved out here. I was like, holy shit, where'd that come from? And then, the, you know, as it is in the NBA, the scouting report basically they just put on the whiteboard, don't let the white guys shoot. Yeah, and that was essentially the end of Mike Penberthy's career. Yeah, it didn't last that long. I actually, yeah. uh, one guy I loved was uh, I love Mark Madsen. He was one of my favorites, mm -hmm. and one of my favorite interviews. He's a good dude, so nice. And one of the coolest things he told me, he basically said like Shaq took it upon himself to be a Mormon dot com, Mormon Match dot com guy, <laughs> yes. Yes. and he would go around. They'd be on. He told me Madsen told me they were on the plane one time. And the flight attendant's walking down the aisle, and Shaq, Shaq's sitting next to Mormon, and he goes to the flight attendant, hey, you Mormon? She's like, no. And he's like, okay. And that Madsen told me he would report to, like, the Lakers office, and a bunch of the uh, office assistants would be sitting there, and they would tell him, yeah, Shaq was around the other day asking if any of us were Mormon. You know, like, Shaq was just needed his goal to set up Mark Madsen. Well, it, you, you said in the book it's because Madsen was saving himself for marriage you know, due to his faith. And Shaq was like, I can't have you hold out this long. I'm just going to find your wife for you. But he actually, I just think like, it's really cool. Like when I wrote the book about Showtime, the magic era, AC Green was a pretty famous virgin coming out of Oregon state. And the Lakers made his life miserable. Like they, he was the, you know, object of great ridicule. And Shaq just wasn't that guy. Shaq wasn't going to make Mark Madsen feel stupid or dumb or out of place, you know? And like, there's a long, I'm telling you, the two best teammates I've ever written about, Shaq and Brett Favre, as far as guys who just made uh, Mike Penberthy, we just mentioned, you know, he makes the team. He doesn't own a suit. He show, he buys a off-the-rack jacket from Nordstrom's. Shaq sees this. He's like, do you own a suit? He's like, no. He's like, next day, come in. And he has his personal shopper, his personal uh, fitter, make six suits and Shaq pays for it. When Penberthy told me when his father died, Shaq said, I'm paying for your dad's funeral. One story after another of that guy just being a decent and good teammate, you know. Well, you 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 mentioned Kazam, you know. I think it was it was, it was a Kazam or the Steel set where where he bought, you know, showed up with the terrarium with the geckos. Uh, it's me, it's or, me. Yeah, he's just a good guy, you know. He's just a good guy. 
Yeah. What's interesting though is like, and the stories about Shaq being a great teammate are you know very well told. But at the same time, though, there's that period in the book where, it, with the first of the three championships, where there, you talk about Kobe, Phil, and I mean Kobe, Shaq, and Glenn Rice. They're the three biggest guys on that team in terms of stature and accomplishments and all that stuff. But none of them are really effective leaders. And yeah. even a, as great a teammate as as Shaq was, and you know, as much as people enjoyed being around him as a teammate. Like the the leadership wasn't necessarily something that came as easy to those three as it did to guys like Brian Shaw, you know, or, or Rick Fox, who didn't have the stature of those guys, but they're more inherent leaders. But but sometimes, though, I maybe not in this case, but a lot of times in sports, you'll see there can be a ceiling to how much certain guys can lead if they're not, you know, the first or second option, you know, if they're not a star of a team. And I, I think the book was actually a really interesting reminder of just how hard leadership is. Well, if you think about it, I always say like the most talented team Shaq and Kobe were on was Van Exel, Eddie Jones, Cedric Ceballos, just as, as far as pure talent in five guys. But Jerry West, I mean, to his great credit, because he could build anything, he just understood how to build a team and how to construct and what you needed. So the Rick Fox, the Robert Ory, Brian Shaw, like – I always think like in baseball, the best players usually are not very good managers. Like Ted Williams is always the example. He's a crummy manager for the Washington Senators. Why? Because they can't always relate to what the guy who's hitting 240. I think a lot of times with leadership, what is Shaq? Shaq is seven feet tall. He's 330 pounds. He's a dominant, dominant force. It comes easy to him. You know, he works hard, but it comes easy to him. Rick Fox can better explain to you what you need to do to stay in shape, how you need to do this, diving for, you know, a guy like Devin George comes along. Who is he going to learn from? He's going to learn from guys like Rick Fox and Robert Ory. He's not going to learn from, not really from Shaquille O'Neal. So I agree with you. When, why do you, are you, how do you come down on the, on the, the question of whether it worked? Because, you know, they're, they're, on the one hand, this is a team that won three titles. On the other hand, they sort of unquestionably left a lot on the on the table like you know if Shaq and Kobe figure out how to play together if Shaq works a little bit harder if Kobe relents a little like they could have won four five six like just the, the talent of those two guys how do you how do you come down on that question of whether or not this was a successful run so it's funny I had a uh, I interviewed Jeannie Buss for the book obviously and uh, I, I have nothing but great things to say about Jeannie and um, I was sitting with her and I was like why do you think I've interviewed her a lot over the years. It's the only time I ever saw her get kind of pissed at me. I said, why do you think 2003, 2004 didn't work? And she's like, that's a weird question. She's like, we need the NBA finals. You know, like mm -hmm. we actually need the NBA finals. What does that mean if that's a bad season? Like what, what is wrong with us if that's a bad season? I thought that was a good point. I think, um, I don't think this was going, I don't think it possibly could have gotten anymore. I just don't. Uh, there was no way Kobe was going to continue playing with Shaq. There's just no way. There was no way Kobe was going to continue playing for Phil at that point. When Kobe had his press conference after he re-signed, he was asked, did Shaq being traded have anything to do with your decision to come back? He said, no, that was bullshit. You know, like he was not coming back if Shaq was there. There's no way he was coming back. So it's kind of like people would ask me when I wrote the book about the 86 Mets, should they have won more World Series? Well, yeah, if Dwight Gooden and Darryl Strawberry weren't addicted to cocaine, they could have won more World Series, but it's not realistic because they were addicted. 
there was just no way those two were going to play together anymore. It was not happening. Yeah, I mean, I remember one time Kobe framing it in a way that I thought was actually pretty smart and honest. He said, it's, it's actually pretty impressive that we managed to make it work as long as we did. And, like, if you think about it as an eight-year marriage, like an eight-year marriage obviously isn't as long as you hope your marriage will be when you get married, but an eight-year marriage is no joke. Like, that's a legit marriage. You were together for a while, and for whatever reason, you decided that you had to go your separate ways. But when you, when you think about how different Kobe and Shaq were as personality types, where they were in their career, and, you know, coexisting in this type of fishbowl, it's actually pretty amazing that they managed to make it work as long and as successfully as it, as it ended up happening. I also think we always want, we have this desire for athletes and teams to be like, they're all buddy buddies and the best friends and blah, blah, blah. I remember again during baseball, like Barry Bonds and Jeff Kent on the Giants, everyone wanted them to have these moments. Like you would always get Barry, do you, are you really starting to appreciate Jeff or Jeff? Do you, and they hated each other, right? They hated each other. But they were both really good players, so it was okay. And I feel like Shaq and Kobe were never going to be best friends. It's just where they were. Oh, no. I think it's Jeff Rosen. Oh, yeah, he is, he's, he's not heeding the thing about it. You say you, you make that, your, your face will freeze that way. Uh, I always hate, too, when people freeze in really unflattering ways. There he is. He's back. Okay, there you go. Yeah, I, we were worried that that was going to be the lasting image that people had of you were making like duck lips to uh, <laughs> to our entire social media following. Oh, man. Uh, By the way, Barry Bonds and Jeff Kent totally deserved each other. Yeah, they really did. They were disasters. Like they, 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 they should have not been allowed to ever leave each other. Like the way they treated everybody else, the two of them should have, like that should have been a condition for them to have a career. You two have to make each other as miserable as you make everybody else around you. Amen. Like we covered Jeff Kent with the Dodgers. He was awful. He, um, there was a story on, in The Athletic by uh, Andrew Baggerly a bunch of months ago, and it was about Barry Bonds and how Barry Bonds feels like a pariah in baseball. And I'm like, yeah, because you treated everyone like crap for 20 years. But this is You do reap what you sow. The chickens come home to roost. Like You treated people badly for 20 years. You treated people like crap. You were not nice to people. This is what happens, and I hope it's a good example that it does pay to have a little compassion and empathy. Yeah, he, yeah he's starting to get back in a little bit. Yeah, right. I was going to say he's starting to get back in a little bit, but a guy like Barry Bonds shouldn't have to struggle to get into the game at all. No, but he was just so mean to people. He was, yeah, I, what used to drive me crazy, I know this is way off topic, is like you'd interview people about Barry Bonds' teammates, and they would always say, you know, Barry's always been good to me. And I'm like, yeah, when the guy who works in the clubhouse holds the door for him, he doesn't even say thank you. Or when the, you know, I remember a time, because I wrote, I wrote a biography of Barry Bonds. Barry, I called the Pittsburgh Pirates team photographer to ask about Bonds. His quote was, I hope Barry Bonds dies. That was his actual quote. He said um, they were raising money. They're doing a fundraiser in Pittsburgh for um, a couple of uh, construction workers on the new stadium. PNC Park had died in an accident. And they were raising money by having different visiting players come in and sign stuff. So like Biggio and Bagwell sign stuff, Randy Johnson, Barry Bonds comes, a team photographer who used to give him free pictures, says, hey, Barry, these two guys died. And he said, Barry Bonds said, F you, I'm not signing a thing. And uh, that was Barry Bonds, you know. Wow. Yeah, some guys, I mean, they're, they're not, I will say, I mean, there are not a lot of people that I've encountered in this world, in, in this universe that I think are just genuinely bad guys any more than like, 
any you know, other. There's the guy who's the roofer turns out to be kind of an ass, or the the your plumber's, you know, he's a good plumber, but he's kind of a dick, you know, whatever yeah. it might be. Um, there are a few though. Um, uh, you yeah. know, and Jeff, Jeff Kent, while every once in a while would give give you a good interview, was just like people are I mean it just I, you know it, it it makes me particularly in the era we're in now, like it you 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 just appreciate just general the kindness to people and most of these guys to their credit yeah understand the the impact that they have when they shake a hand when they you know high five a kid when they do whatever they can they can never satisfy anyone i think most of them get it and i it's part of the reason at least for me my experience i i like working around the people the athletes are the least of the problems i think yeah. most of the time yeah i always um i just want to say like Jeff Ken, you get paid $20 million a year to hit a round ball with a stick. You're the luckiest man in the universe. You you have you have no business treating other people like crap. Like you are you have won the lottery times a thousand. And that always made me really angry. Well, I mean, I wouldn't even say that they won the lottery just because I mean Jeff Kent put the work in to be sure. where he is. I just more feel like you don't have to be that way. No. Like, you know, and and I mean, when we covered him for the three years that we covered the Dodgers. Man, I'd really never seen anything like this before. He really was – his locker was as far in the corner of the Dodgers clubhouse as it could be without it being, like, in a different locker room. Like, he basically was just as far separated from everybody else as he could. And he essentially was keeping the entire clubhouse on edge and just tense and just with this cloud hanging over it so nobody would talk to him. Like that really was what it was all about is I'm going to keep everybody totally uncomfortable so nobody will interact with me as if as if anybody was trying to. Right. Like he just wanted people to be so far away from him. And yeah. it was just it was a bizarre thing. It yeah, was really strange. I learned that from Barry, to be honest with you, because he used to do that. <laughs> he did that in San Francisco all the time. You know, he had, he had four lockers against the wall. He had a massage chair. He had a TV. I've never seen it. I've been there before. I've never seen anything like that. No, it's the Giants. The Giants should have been ashamed by the way they treated him. I mean, it was embarrassing. The power they surrendered to Barry. Barry Bonds, actually, I don't know your guys' political affiliation. It's all good, but a lot of his mannerisms actually remind me of Trump, which I, I used to say this to my kids. Like, they both have the ability to just walk through norms. Like, I'm just going to walk through it. I'm not going to pay it any mind. I don't care. You guys have a team publishers. I don't want to publish this. I'm bringing my own publishers. I'm just walking through. And it's frustrating that people who walk through norms often get away with it because we're all too wimpy to stand up to the people. Well, yeah. it's, it's what you, what you learn about norms, whether they're legal norms, sort of ethical norms or whatever, is they, they only matter to the extent that people observe them. Like most of them are unenforceable, like, especially if you're yeah. talented, if you're talented, if you're powerful, you know, often the same thing. Um, the, you know, there's only so much people can or are willing to do, and it's all very fragile. Um, and I, I think that, you know, we're learning that now. Uh, it's just these yep. are things that are all structures that are very, very fragile. Yeah, you're right. And it's like putting the, putting the, uh, the frog in the pot of water. You change it a little and a little and a little and a little. And people say nothing. is. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And all of a sudden you're boiling and the frog is dead. So, you, Jeff, you've written about the 80s Lakers. You've now done the sort of late 90s, 2000 Lakers. Somebody mentioned it earlier in the chat. When are you going to do the uh, the book on the Wasteland Lakers between uh, the the Kobe Powell championship teams and the arrival of LeBron? 
I think that may not be happening. <laughs> you're gonna skip that? I might skip that one. I'll leave it to you guys. You guys, that's I mean, how, how much do you okay. how much do you want to interview Lavar Ball? Ah, uh, it'll be the best. That's my kind of guy right there. That's my the best. Guy. The best, if by best you mean the worst. Correct. Yes. Not my kind of guy. Not no. my kind of guy. No, um, it, it's funny actually. I've, I've prided myself on having pegged that one correctly right away because there was that period where people were, I think, charmed and amused. Um, and I'm like, no, this is not good for anybody involved. Most importantly, his three kids. Oh, and, yeah. you know, Lonzo, I think, can still, you know, carve out a good career. And it, you know, it seems like LaMelo actually is going to be able to make this work despite all the chaos. But they could have had a lot easier path getting to where I think they would have all ended up anyway without all the bullshit that came with Lamar. He was really disturbing. It really bothered me just because he. I feel like he forgot that kids need to mature and they need to, to go through the highs and lows and mm -hmm. go on dates and learn to drive and go to the prom and have the, you know, blah, and to take that away from your kids for what? You know, for fame and glory and for a sneaker you're making? Like, no, it's really, the thing that always bothered me is like, I don't. I don't doubt that he loves his children, but I, you know, it's it's the it's the it's the need for everything to be a reflection of his, you know, skill. And the to be a reflection of him. But it always was more about him than the kids. Yeah, I agree, hundred um, percent. All right, so we we have we have bled as we often do. We bled over the the late night happy hours. Now officially, the late night happy hour in ten minutes. It's late night, 70 minutes um, with Jeff Perlman, who is it is a really fun book. You can get it uh, starting on September 22nd. You order on Amazon through your local bookseller. It is a great time, obviously, to be supporting local bookstores as best as you can. It's Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaqville and the crazy years of the Lakers dynasty. Um, if, it's, if you're a basketball fan, it's worth a read. If you're a Lakers fan, it's a must. Yeah, absolutely. You will you will devour this if you are a Laker fan. And uh, we really appreciate the time, man, and best of success with the book. I, you're already starting the new one, so that's awesome. And the podcast, if you're interested in, in uh, writing and you just like to hear how this stuff works and, the, and, and writers talk about the craft, Two Writers Slinging Yang is, a, is Jeff's podcast, and it's it's a great listen. Uh, and also, as, uh, as other Michael Lewis says. In a few weeks, I will, uh, if you want, I'm going to start working on my new book. It's called... Uh, Mount Kisco Holiday and the Bar Mitzvah years. <laughs> Recap. Well, you got to find, you got to track down that one, uh, that one guy. Jimmy McGonagall. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he's going to be, I think he's going to be a very, very compelling character. I agree. I agree. Did he there talk to you again after that? Were you guys still friends after that or not? I think we were friendly, but it was a tough, it was a tough. <laughs> couldn't overcome it. Yeah. Some, some things are too much. Um, yeah. All right, Jeff, thank you so much for the time. Uh, we really appreciate it. Again, the book's fantastic, and uh, I, people are looking forward to it. And thanks for coming out. We really appreciate right. it. Thank you so much. Cool. Yeah, Laker fans, you're going to love this thing. Yeah, it is really – it's a lot of fun. Uh, programming note, we learned uh, earlier today Vinny Bonsignor, who was scheduled for Friday, is going to have to reschedule. So we'll probably push him, I think, to next week, uh, either maybe Monday after Monday Night Football or Friday uh, and just fill that Friday football slot. Tanya Ganguly, though, tomorrow night uh, from the LA Times, we're going to get it ready for the Western Conference Finals. Um, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Again, people check out Three Ring Circus. Everybody who uh, it looks it, it looks like this. I was going to say, I ninety seven percent of the people tuning into this show, you're a Laker fan, you're going to love this book. Yeah. Um, all right. So Tanya Ganguly tomorrow, 
TBD on Friday following the game one of the Western Conference Finals, Lakers versus Denver, as everyone predicted. And uh, shout we'll, out to Bill Orham. We see you, Lord. Yes. Thank you, Bill. Uh, <laughs> we'll see everyone tomorrow. Thanks a lot.